If you would, take your Bible and open to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. There are certain realities in life that if we ever come to believe them and understand them, will change everything about how we live, what we live for. One of those realities is the reality that each of us only has one life. And your life, whether it lasts for only a few hours or for several decades, in the big picture is actually extremely short. We have one life. It's like a mist. It's here one moment and and gone the next. And some people, when they begin to think about the idea that I have one life to live, and this life is very short, some people hear that and it drives them to some really dark places. It drives them to places of despair and depression. Other people hear that you only have one life to live, and they hear that and it drives them to success, it drives them to pleasure, it drives them to this idea, I'm gonna get everything I can get, I'm gonna achieve everything I can achieve. And 1 Corinthians 15 in the Bible says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, so if this one life is all that exists and all that ever will exist, then by all means, eat and drink and be merry, live it up, go for all that you can get because tomorrow we die. But we're here this morning to say on the basis of God's word that we have one life and that life is a gift from the creator God. And we have been given this life to glorify him and to experience his love and his life in us that will then go out into the world to other people. We are meant to live in this way and so your life this morning, you have one life to live and this life is so short, but your life is not a waste, it's not a game, and it's not a bore. Your life is a gift from the God of the universe to be lived for his glory, for his purposes, to experience all that he is and all that he wants you to know about him and about this world he's created. But here's the challenge. Every one of us also has fallen short of God's glory. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is marked by sin. Every one of us faces the reality of sin in our lives. And here's what the Bible also says. The wages of sin is death. And so sin causes trouble in your life. Sin causes trouble in the world. And sin separates us from God, not only in this life, but sin threatens to separate us from God for all of eternity. And so what do we also know? We have one life to live, and we will face death, And after death, what do we face then? We face judgment. We stand before the God of the universe. We have life, we have death, then we have life after death. And we stand before the creator God, we stand before the God of the universe. And in that moment, what do we stand there with? We stand there with the reality of sin in our lives. And so you say, man, Owen, that is a super encouraging way to open the sermon. Like, just thank you for for that opportunity to, to think about this on a Sunday morning. But we need to think about this on a Sunday morning. And we need to think about this on a Monday morning, and we need to think about this on a Tuesday morning. You have one life that's given to you by the God of the universe to be lived for his glory, and that life is marked by sin that separates us from God, 
that one day will lead to death, that one day will mean we will stand before God. And the question is, in life and death, what is your hope? Facing sin and death, we say it like this in Emmaus, every person on earth faces two problems that they can't fix on their own, sin and death. But we believe that Jesus has dealt with both of those through the cross and the resurrection, through his life, through the giving of his blood, through the giving of his life on the cross, and through his resurrection. And so what I want to do this morning is I want you to see that good news in Hebrews chapter 9. We are going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, and the question we're asking ourselves as we go through this chapter is, God, where is my hope in life and in death? How have you overcome sin and death to give us life everlasting. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Here's the good news after that tough start, all right? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now even the first covenant, Hebrews 9, 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. If you weren't with us last week, some of this is going to carry forward from last week. We talked about a first covenant and a second covenant, and we made a chart about these are realities of the first covenant, these are realities of the second covenant. And one of the connections we're finding between the first covenant, and you can think about this kind of as the Old Testament part of your Bible, and then the new covenant, the second covenant that would come, is corresponds in many ways to the New Testament part of your Bible. And so in the both covenants, both testaments, you have ways that we are able to draw near to God in worship. We can't just walk, strut into the presence of a holy God. The, there are regulations given for worship. There are places where worship happens. And so the author is helping us realize what does it mean to be able to draw near to God? What does it mean to be able to come near to him in worship? Well, verse 2. How did this worship happen in the first covenant? It says a tent. This is also that idea of a tabernacle. A tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. So in the Old Covenant, you had this tent, and we're going to see a picture of this in a minute. So hang on if it doesn't come up with a picture in your mind. We're going to look at a picture in just a minute. But this tent, this tabernacle was established that had different sections. And so you walked into the first section, or like not everybody got to walk in there, but you could go into the first section. It was called the holy place. And there's these different items that are in there. There's a lampstand. This is the famous menorah that you might see around the time of Hanukkah and, and Christmas. And so the menorah would put light. It would shine light down on this table that had the bread. And it was the idea of God's light shining on his people. So this is a very beautiful holy place that the priest would go in. Verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. Now pick up here this language of first and second. So there's a first place that you would go in, the tabernacle, but then there was another curtain so you could go into a second place that was considered even more holy. The author is going to pick up on this idea of first and second, first part of the tabernacle, second part of the tabernacle, first covenant, second covenant. He's going to make these type of connections here. What else do we know about the tabernacle? Well, look in the middle of verse 4 there. In this tabernacle, there was this ark in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, these are not most important to the argument the preacher's making, and he's running out of time, which I feel that pressure. I understand that. Like, I would like to say more about this. There's probably more we could say about this. That's not what we're focused on right now. That's not the detail of what we're focused on. However, what I would like to do is show you a picture, an idea of what this looks like. Tragically, I forgot to bring my cool laser pointer uh, this morning, so uh, no laser pointer. You're going to have to kind of make, make sense of this yourself, and if you have trouble seeing the screen, I'll try to talk you through it. On the left is a bit of a layout for what the tabernacle would, would have been like, and then on the right is obviously a replica, not a true picture from history, but a replica of what the setup of the tabernacle would be. So you had this outer court area that the people could come into, and then for the actual tent or the tabernacle, it was divided into these two sections. The first section, the priest could go in, and then the other interior section, only the high priest could go into one time per year. Now, we're going to use an image here, okay? We're going to think about it in this way. The tabernacle, or later the temple, was always oriented east and west, okay? It was always oriented east and west. So east that way, west that way. We're going to think about this. Imagine the lobby of this building being the outer court area. I don't know if you saw out there an altar of sacrifice. The only thing sacrificed this morning were donuts. They gave up their life uh, for the children. So uh, maybe that's the altar is over there where the coffee and the donuts were sacrificed. But all of that was out there in the initial area of sacrifice. So that was kind of the courtyard area. Then imagine you come in here and in your mind put a curtain along the front. We almost have a curtain of boxes right here. So like our, our Operation Christmas Child, just, just pretend that those are the, that's the curtain dividing from the Holy of Holies. And so the priest could come into that initial section, but this area up here was considered the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and, and that was where God's power and presence were thought to dwell. Think about this for just a second. This is not the main point, but this is a very important point. Okay, the beginning of your Bible, the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, do you know what direction they were sent out of the garden? They were sent east. So when the tabernacle and the temple are built such that you are moving east to west to come into the presence of God, what's that a picture of? That's about going back to the garden. That's about going back into the presence of God. So sin drove them east away from the presence of God, and God had to make a way for them to come back into his presence, to be able to be with him, to be in relationship with him, to worship him. And so the tabernacle is set up to give us that kind of picture. Now verse 6, look at what happens here in verse 6. So they are separated symbolically from God. Verse 6 it says, These preparations, so the preparations of the temple, having thus been made, the priests go regularly, easy for you to say, uh, often, into the first section, performing their ritual duties. Okay, so the priests there in verse 6, they would go daily and weekly. Kids, those of you that have chores, the priest had chores, okay? They had daily chores, they had weekly chores, they went in and they took th care of things, so they would go into that first section. Verse 7, but into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, 
and not without taking blood, which he offers both for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That verse in your Bible refers back to Leviticus chapter 16 in the Old Testament. It also refers, if you have any Jewish friends or Jewish co-workers, this is referring to Yom Kippur or, or the Day of Atonement. It usually happens in late September, early October on the calendar. And it, in many ways, is considered the most holy day of the Jewish calendar. It's a day where the people remember this act of atonement that the high priest would offer. And so it's still a big deal in Jewish life even today. Verse, verse 8. By this setup, the Holy Spirit has been indicating something. The Holy Spirit is showing us that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as that first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. So the setup of the tabernacle, having these two sections that people, only a few people could go into, it was a picture that in some way under the old covenant, we are still limited in our access to God. Let me give you a, a, just kind of a thought about this. If you have ever in your life thought, I am so bad and I am so messed up, that there's no way I can go into that church building. <laughs> like, if you know the joke about this, that if I go in there, lightning's going to strike. And we laugh about that, but there are people who are so buried in their darkness and their sin that they think if I was to go to a religious gathering, if I was to go into a church building, if I was to go around the things of God, I would stay in no hope. This idea of being separated from God's presence because of our sin, this tabernacle, this temple is a picture of that. Middle of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Okay, in the Old Covenant, there are two main problems that people run into. One, only a few people have direct access to the presence of God. People feel separated, still feel separated from God's presence. Number two, the sacrifices that were given in the Old Covenant we're not able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Okay, let's talk about this idea of conscience because this is an important reality. A couple of things I would tell you about conscience. Your conscience is not equal to the Holy Spirit, okay? Every person on the planet has a conscience. Some people's conscience works better than others, <laughs> but, but every person, whether they are saved or unsaved, Christian or not Christian, every person has a conscience, that conscience is the internal reality of your life. It's your internal moral reasoning. It witnesses to what's happening inside of you. And let me just say this. Don't let your conscience be your guide if your conscience is not in a purified place by the blood of Jesus in good relationship with God. We, you know, we watch Pinocchio and let your conscience be your guide. Well, that is terrible life advice as are many Disney movie mantras, but uh, that is that's terrible life advice because let your conscience be your guide. Well, what happens to our conscience in sin? It gets twisted and it gets defiled and it gets messed up in so many ways. What, what affects your conscience? Guilt and shame, the things that we allow into our minds, the things that impact our moral reasoning. So quickly, our conscience can take us off to the side. And what the first covenant was able to do is it could address some things, but it couldn't address what was going on inside you. And so we needed some type of hope, some type of healing that could deal with our conscience. So what do you find 
in verse 10. These old covenant sacrifices, they have to do only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations of the body for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what they're saying here is all of those Old Testament covenants and tabernacles and sacrifices, they could deal with some surface level things, but they couldn't actually set you straight. All right, here's an interesting thing. That word reformation down there, you might think of the Protestant Reformation that we just celebrated a few days ago, that idea of reformation. The word reformation, if you dig into it, the Greek word is connected to our modern word, orthodontics. Not the donis part, but the ortho, the setting, setting straight. So kids, adults, how many of you have gone through the braces thing before? Yep, it's always frustrating, discouraging. Many of you out there are in the middle of braces world right now. Let me give you a way to think about this. Imagine that you need braces, that your teeth are messed up, they're not straightened out. And someone tells you, you know the way that you're going to get those teeth straightened out? You just need to brush more. Like, if you just brush better, that's going to take care of your teeth being straight. Well, I can tell you, it's a good thing, kids, that you brush your teeth. You can brush your teeth all you want, and that's not going to ultimately straighten those teeth out. You need something else to happen. It's like under the old covenant, the people are trying to brush their teeth to get their teeth straight. And the pastor here in this book of Hebrews says, you need something else to happen. You need to be straightened out in a different way. What's that hope? Well, look in verse 11. But when Christ appeared, that feels like good news. <laughs> I don't have to brush my teeth hard anymore to straighten them out. Like, there's a better answer coming. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So he has come to provide a different way, a new covenant. Look at verse 12. What did Jesus do? He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What is your hope to stand before God one day? It's not how well you brushed your teeth. It's not well, how well you lived your life. It's not all the great things you've accomplished. What is your hope to stand before God in one day? It is the blood of Jesus poured out for you. Your trust in him, your hope in him. He is the one who secures your eternal redemption. Verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so for the outside, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That feels like underlining and highlighting right there. This idea that through Jesus' blood, our conscience has been purified from dead works, idolatry, Works that ultimately just lead to death, that, that go after things that don't truly give life. Why is our conscience purified? So we can live and serve the living God. Okay, I want to make just a quick side comment that's somewhat connected to these verses. And we can, we can uh, have further conversations uh, about this. Here's what I want to say. 
there, as we think about our conscience uh, being twisted and, and the shame and guilt that we deal with in life, and we think about living in a, a world with so much sin and, and difficulty, in that middle of that pain, trying to deal with that pain, there's the temptation sometimes to deal with your pain and your guilt and your shame by cutting or self-harm. We're trying to deal with situations that we can't control on our own. We're trying to deal with a conscience that just feels covered in, in this guilt and shame. And so we need some way to handle that pain, handle that difficulty. And I want you to know, if you're in that situation, if that's something that you struggle with, number one, talk to somebody. We, we want to love you and care for you through that because that's, that's a really tough situation to walk through. But here's what I want you to know about the good news of Jesus. Because of our conscience, because of what we face with guilt and shame and all the brokenness of this world, you don't have to deal with that pain by inflicting harm and difficulty on your own life to find peace. Jesus has taken your place. He has done for you what only he can do, what we could never do on our own. And so sometimes we try to take these matters into our own hand to find peace and comfort and stability. And I just want you to know that Jesus is able to walk with you through that, that he has taken your sin and your shame and the difficulty of this world upon himself, and there's hope. And so if you're here this morning, it, this is not just a teenage thing, this is an adult thing too, but if you're here this morning and you find yourself causing harm to yourself, in order to try to deal with a hard conscience or guilt or shame, there's a better way. And you turn to Jesus, and you can find hope and healing. And so I want to encourage you, encourage you to do that. Let's continue to go through these, these verses and see this good news. Verse 15, look at this good news of the new covenant. This Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised, inherit <laughs> promised eternal inheritance. There again, there's our hope beyond this life. How can we have this? Middle of 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So a change of covenant, hope for eternal life, is tied to this idea of death. Verse 16. Where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. Verse 17, this makes sense to us in our world. Verse 17, a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law, verse 19, had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying in verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. And you're like, man, that's a lot of blood. Well, look at verse 22. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, under that first covenant, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How does God deal with the reality of sin in the world? It's through another life being taken. Where do we find that hope? Not in these Old Testament sacrifices. Think how bloody that job of being a priest would have been. I mean, that's, if your stomach is turned by blood, that's not the job you wanted in the Old Covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23, 
thus. It was necessary, just like it was in the first covenant, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves, they needed better sacrifices than those bulls and goats. Verse 24, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, so Christ didn't go into the temple to offer his sacrifice, he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 25, nor when he went there was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then, verse 26 says, if that would have been the case, Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a cool verse in the Bible. Look at how the phrasing works there. He has appeared. How many times did Jesus come to die? Once. Once for all. When did he do that? At the appointed time that God set out, this is going to be the end of the ages. This is the end of that first covenant, and now the new covenant has come, and we learned last week we're not looking for a third covenant. The new covenant has come in Jesus. You live in the last days, not because the world is chaotic, but because Jesus has come. That's what it means to live in the last days. He has come for what purpose? To put away sin, to destroy the power of sin. How did he do that? Thankfully, not through bulls and goats but by giving himself through his own body, his own blood. Why is that good news? Verse 27. It's good news because it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me say this very directly to you, what those verses are putting in place for us. Some people may have the idea that I'll kind of live my life, and then after this life, after death, I'll have a chance to make things right with God. That's not at all the teaching of the New Testament. That we say that Jesus has come to deal with sin, and that we are called to repent and turn to him because one day we will face judgment after death. And Jesus at that time is not dealing with sin. He is coming to bring salvation. He is coming to bring salvation to this people who have been waiting on him. And so today is the day to turn and trust in Jesus. Today is the day to realize that his blood has dealt with your sins. What I want you to see from these, these verses, let me put just two, two simple points on the screen. We've said this about 12 different ways, 12 different times as we went through the chapter, so it's not, no surprise. This is hopefully not a shocker slide for you, but what does the power of the blood of Jesus mean? It means that sin is defeated, and it means that death is defeated. And what do we know about sin and death? We know that every person on earth has two problems they can't fix on their own, sin and death, and Jesus has dealt with both of those. When he defeated sin, he provides a purified conscience to serve God. When you trust in Jesus for salvation, he changes you not just on the flesh. He doesn't just brush your teeth. He straightens them out. <laughs> he, he changes you on the inside. He makes you new. And he continues to do that work in your life. That your conscience 
is shaped by the Holy Spirit in such a way that you come to know this is the way God wants me to live. This is the direction that my life should go. Which means, if you're here in the room and you're a Christian, you have to be so careful what you allow to shape your conscience. Because when our conscience is twisted and messed up and defiled, when, when our internal idea, our internal compass about what is right and wrong, about how we should live our lives, when that gets out of whack, man, things get ugly in a hurry, right? And so we're always wanting to say, God, I want my conscience to be shaped by what? By your word, by your Holy Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Because what do we know? When your conscience is messed up, when it gets seared, when you're covered in guilt and shame, do you know what it's really hard to do in those situations? It's really hard to serve Jesus. When you are messed up internally, when your conscience feels twisted and seared, it's really hard to go out and serve the Lord in the way that he's called you to serve him. What are the types of things that can mess up our conscience? Well, virtually anything you let in your eyes and your ears. And I know you're like, oh man, Owen, you're about to tell us to be really careful what we watch and listen to. You better believe I am. <laughs> why, why am I going to tell you that? Because I know what happens with what goes in my eyes and ears. What we allow into our lives begins to shape our conscience, begins to shape our lives. Just for illustration purpose, let me throw a couple of things out there for you. These may feel like they're not related, but I think they actually are. Pornography will shape your conscience in ways that go beyond anything you can imagine. And you say, that, that's a random thing to pick out. Not particularly, because pornography has such a hold not just on a generation, but on our entire culture, our entire world. And, and we are allowing things into our lives that shape not just how we think about sexuality, but how we think about one another. And pornography, in a way that almost is different than anything else we deal with in the world, messes with our ideas of guilt and shame. People who are caught up in por pornography deal with such deep guilt and shame that it's almost impossible to serve God the way that he's created us to serve him. And so if you're here this morning and you think about dealing with that, that scourge of, of pornography, that you know that the blood of Jesus is able to purify your conscience. And the Holy Spirit of God will heal you and guide you in such a way that you're able to live for the Lord. And you might be here this morning and pridefully say, man, I'm glad I don't deal with pornography. Can I ask if you're addicted to cable news? Uh, you know? Like, you may be here and be super proud that you're, you're not dealing with pornography, but your mind is being shaped hour upon hour by what people of the world are saying about things, and it is shaping your conscience, and it is changing your heart and minds in ways that you probably don't even notice in the time. And so we are here today to say, I want my life, I want my conscience to be shaped by the Word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit, based on the blood of Jesus, because one day we're going to stand before the Lord, and our only hope at that moment is the blood of Jesus, that death has been defeated, and so we are going to spend our life anticipating the return of Jesus, when he will return to make all things new. When you spend 30 plus minutes plus time before that singing about the blood of Jesus, you know what we want to do as a church? We want to take the Lord's Supper together. <laughs> Because Jesus has given us this ordinance, this, this taking of communion, where we are reminded as a church that our hope is found in the body and blood of Jesus. I want to be very clear with you. Coming to take of these pieces of bread and this juice, it does not take your sins away. 
this body, or this, this bread and this blood, whew, let me try that again. This is just juice, just we know this. This bread and this juice here, they are not your ticket to stand before God in judgment one day. Is your faith in Jesus. And so if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, number one, I'm thankful that you're here so you want to know more about the things of Jesus. Use this time for reflection on your own life, this idea that we have one life and it's soon going to come to the end. You, use this time to reflect on that. Use this as a time of prayer. If you have questions, man, reach out to me anytime. Catch me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about God's work in your life. If you're here as a Christian, this is your time to remember where your hope is found. What is my hope in life and death? It is the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper together. God, these Sundays are so good to be able to do that. Thank you for the psalms that we were able to sing together about the blood of Jesus poured out for us. We can't earn our way to you. We are not called, we are not asked to do harm to ourselves in, in order to find a purified conscience or, or to deal with pain and sin. Jesus has died for us in our place, and that provides such healing and such peace and such hope. God, I know there are people in this room that because of things going on in their own lives or their families, they're having to deal with this question of death. They, more than maybe other people in the room, feel the weight of the fact that we have one life and this life is so short. And instead of them coming in this morning feeling that weight and that despair, God, I pray that you would give them peace that comes only from you, that they would know that their hope in death is that Jesus has died for them, rose again, and he will return one day to make all things right. And so we gather for worship today to remember that. And Father, during this time of taking the Lord's Supper, if there are people here that are struggling with doubts, they're struggling with their own questions of faith, God, I pray that you give them a chance to reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.